Tando, Vaco, Vaco, Nuya, Pila, 
you give life, you are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise, pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. You give life, you give life, you are love. Shout your 
Yes, you're so great. Oh, great are you, Lord. Yes, you're great. Just declare it and sing it. Great are you, Lord. Yes, we declare it. The title of my message today is Hope for the World. How do you view the future? And as we here starting a new year, uh, 2nd of January, how do you view the future? What are your hopes and aspirations, not only for the year ahead, but perhaps the longer term future? Now, when I ask this question, how do you view the future? I'm not talking so much about what you believe about the future, but a little bit more about how. We're going to talk about the what in a little bit. Often we find that, you know, some people have a bit more of an optimistic view of the future. Perhaps some are more pessimistic. And perhaps it just depends on what you've read in the news on that day, how optimistic or pessimistic you are. But perhaps in general, if you're more optimistic, speaking now just from a, a, a human point of view, we'll bring in a biblical view shortly. People who tend to be more optimistic about the future tend to hold to something called evolutionary optimism. By that, they mean that just if we give ourselves enough time, if we educate, education becomes very important in this view. If we educate people enough, things are going to get better. Humans are evolving, society is evolving, and it's becoming better. Now, the really interesting question is how do you define better? But generally, an optimistic view of the future would say that over time, we will progress and we will become better towards some form of human utopia, whatever that may look like. And Obviously, different politicians, different philosophers have different views on how they've defined that. But genuinely, if you're more optimistic outside of God, that you'd kind of be thinking in that way. But perhaps you're more pessimistic. So things like overpopulation and um, global warming and collapses of society and the depart from traditional, de uh, departing from traditional values, human corruption, just make you more pessimistic in general about the future, that things are just going to get worse and worse, and what are we going to do about that? Now, in terms of Christian belief and, and in, in the Christian family, in our brothers and sisters in Christ, real Christians, uh, we also have people who tend to be more optimistic or perhaps more pessimistic about the future. Those on the more optimistic side, we tend to focus a lot more on something called kingdom now, but that actually that God's kingdom will come on earth in our lifetimes and the church will rule and the church should be involved in many things. And I think some of those things are true, but generally they would take that to quite an extreme viewpoint. But also sometimes as Christians, we're quite pessimistic and perhaps we just believe, look, this world is coming to nothing. Evil's going to increase. It's all going to burn anyway. So what really just counts is getting people into heaven. That's quite a pessimistic view of the future and of the world. Now, how we think about the future is very important. And as I'll say later, because it affects how we live in the present. So what is your position as a Christian? And I think there's something we can learn from Jesus when he lived on earth in the first century. In Jesus's day, if you looked at the political landscape, but particularly how people viewed the future, they saw living in Palestine, just in the area surrounding Jerusalem, they effectively saw two Options. The one solution, one view of the future was that we have to side with Jewish nationalism. 
Today we would kind of call that a more right-wing view, although please understand in the first century they didn't think in terms of left-wing or right-wing. I'm just helping, trying to help us relate. But Jewish nationalism, that the, the Jews must rise up, God is on the side of Israel, he wants the Messiah to come and establish the kingdom, and they're going to rule over the world and they're going to kick the Romans out. That is why there was such a strong expectation around the Messiah in Jesus' day that he would be a military ruler, political and military ruler. And so some people looked to the future and they thought that Jewish nationalism was the future and it was the answer. We would kind of think of that a little bit more in, like in, on the right of the spectrum. The other option that you could look at if you lived in Palestine in the first century was what we can call Roman imperialism and the influence of the Roman worldview, which was largely Greek, by the way, on life. And this would kind of be today what we think a little bit more on the left of the spectrum, although probably not as left as we understand it. But for a Jewish person living in Jerusalem, they would have regarded the Romans as quite liberal, as departing from traditional values and introducing new customs and new things. But if you thought in terms of power play and power politics in the first century, there was this simmering tension about Jewish nationalism versus Roman imperialism. And, and often the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because they kind of went different ways on this, try to draw Jesus into this debate. Even Pilate, when he asked him, Pontius Pilate, when he asked him, of what kingdom are you a king? He's kind of trying to place Jesus on this spectrum. And Jesus does something interesting. He says, my kingdom's not of this world. Neither Jewish nationalism nor Roman imperialism is going to be an answer. The answer that Jesus proposes is his kingdom. In other words, the kingdom of God. And so Jesus has this what we want to call today a biblical view of the future, that the only solution for the future is that is God's solution, God's plan. And that plan is about the kingdom of God. And so Jesus chooses neither, and he proposes what we could call a radical third alternative to the um, bipolar, the polar opposites that were present in his society in that day. And I want to propose today as well that as we consider the future, that we hold this radical third, third alternative of Jesus as the best option for the future. The best option for the future is the kingdom of God, because it's only in the kingdom of God and with that perspective that you can be appropriately optimistic and realistically, if there is such a thing, pessimistic around, around what will happen in future and how things will go. So how do you view the future? And particularly, how do you view your role in bringing about that future? Or are you just fatalistic? Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And I want to challenge you today in that space and say, I'm not sure that's an option that the Bible allows for us. I believe you have an active role to play in partnering with God to establish his kingdom. In your front line, whatever that is, God has a plan and a purpose for you to be there. What is your role in the future? And so I've spoken about the kingdom of God just quickly a few things about the kingdom of God, and then I want to talk about a particular challenge we have that affects how we live out as kingdom citizens and, and express the kingdom of God on the earth. So what do I mean by the kingdom of God? Now, very simply put, the kingdom of God is always the sovereign rule of God. Now, I believe that that has to do with the reign, the, the area over which God has authority, which because he's the creator, is the whole universe, every area of life, the reign of God. But I also believe that the kingdom of God is both a reign and a realm. There's a place uh, which sometimes popularly we refer to as heaven, but I think which is also referred to as the new heaven and the new earth 
and the kingdom of God. There's a realm in which God will rule and does rule as well. Now, for those of you a little bit better read on this, I'm aware that there's some tensions and and issues around something called kingdom theology and that we can take it too far. And so maybe just to be really clear and upfront in in terms of how I view the kingdom in this space is I want to be clear that we don't establish God's kingdom. God does. God builds God's kingdom. But God as king of the kingdom has chosen that we can be agents that partner with him in establishing his kingdom. God uses us. This is part of what I think is involved in being made in the image of God and being appointed as, or commissioned as stewards of the earth. You'll remember we did that series uh, last year on identity. Some of those things speak about how we express and live out as kingdom citizens on the earth. So I do believe we work towards the kingdom of God, but I don't think it ever comes until Jesus returns. We move in a direction, but only when Jesus returns will the kingdom of God become be fulfilled in its fullest reality and in its fullest intent. But we must understand very clearly that Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God. Uh, you can read, for example, in Matthew 4, 17, where it's just after Jesus' baptism, he says, and from that time, Jesus started preaching and he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, Jesus very clearly understood that he was there to establish the kingdom, that his life, death and resurrection would actually end up inaugurating, bringing the kingdom of God into the present reality of that time, but also into our present reality. It's interesting that Jesus says repentance, which as we understand that Greek word involves a change of mind. It's time to change your mind and to think differently about, for example, the future, because the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, Jesus did come to seek and save that which was lost. He was clear about that. But the purpose that he came to seek and save that which was lost was so that he could establish and build God's kingdom on this earth. So Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God. We must understand that God's kingdom, as we experience it now, is what we call an already but not yet kingdom. There's aspects of the kingdom that are breaking through into our lives. When we get born again, we become new creations. That's evidence of the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit comes and lives in us as a deposit. That's evidence of things promised in future by God. There is this element of the kingdom of God being now. But there's also elements of the kingdom that are not yet fully established, that are not present, that will still be coming. One of the places we see this most clearly reflected is in the Lord's Prayer, this tension. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10, when Jesus' disciples ask him to teach them to pray, one of the aspects of what we call the Lord's Prayer that Jesus says, and you'll all know this line, verse 10 reads, it says, For your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Present tense. Jesus is saying, You should pray that the kingdom of God breaks into your present reality. In Matthew, he refers to heaven because of the Jewish mindset. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same concept. I don't think there's a, I think it's a language distinction, not a concept distinction in the New Testament. And so when Jesus says, pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he's actually saying, let heaven come to earth. Let the kingdom of God come and be expressed on this earth. This is not only what we should pray, but what we should strive for as we live. Now, there's many scriptures that speak about the kingdom of God. I just want to mention one more, and that's Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Paul's writing to the Roman colony of Philippi, where 
there was a very clear understanding of what it meant to have the privileges of Roman citizenship. And he writes to them in uh, what's for us, Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21, and he says the following, but our citizenship, believers, us as believers, our citizenship is in heaven, in the present tense. Now, as you and I, are, as I'm speaking and you are watching, we are citizens in he of heaven. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. Paul goes on and he says, as we eagerly await the Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And so Paul refers here that as citizens of heaven, we are still waiting for the return of Jesus. He also talks about the transformation of our bodies, and I'm going to speak into that in a little while, but just remember this, this verse also speaks to that. But also note here that part of the, what's linked to the return of Jesus is that there's this process of bringing everything under his control. And I believe that's the mandate that we as believers, as agents of hope, as citizens of the kingdom, have in this world today is to work with God, to partner with God as he builds his kingdom to bring things under his control. And so when I'm engaged, for example, in uh, spiritual practices like deliverance or praying for healing, that's part of bringing the future kingdom into the already. When I take care of the needy and the poor and advocate on their behalf, that's part of bringing God's kingdom. It's part of acting as a citizen of heaven and bringing God's kingdom, bringing into the present, bringing heaven to earth. But it also means when I, in my front line, let's say it's a workplace company, when I present a budget that's done with excellence, that balances, that is just and fair, that's part of establishing God's kingdom. When I deal with HR matters, human resources matters, with justice and equity, that's part of being a citizen of heaven. So there's these, what we would generally be quite comfortable as saying, as spiritual practices or Christian practices. But I believe to be a citizen of heaven means to bring God's kingdom into every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our front lines. You see, God's kingdom is the only real hope for the future. Solutions proposed by what we would refer to as a liberal left-wing, solutions that we would propose by perhaps a conservative right-wing, neo-Marxist solutions, fundamentalist nationalist solutions, solutions proposed by identity politics, ultimately they will not bring real solutions. They will not bring hope because they're based on humankind. They're based on human ideas and human people, fallen people. And so it's only the kingdom of God that can bring real hope for the future. You see, Revelation eleven fifteen very clearly tells us that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And so the destiny of the world is to be every kingdom, every nation is to become part of the kingdom of God. And so because the kingdom is the only real hope for the world, how we view the future and how we view our role in God's kingdom affects how we live in the present. Now, I'm aware that certain streams of Christian thought lean towards what, if I may refer to as a bit of an escapist view, that the only thing that really matters in future is that Jesus is going to come and he's going to rescue us from this evil world. Now, I do think Jesus is coming in the future and I do think there'll be something like the rapture. 
But the escapist view just says, well, nothing really matters. It's all going to burn anyway. What really counts is just let me get as many people into heaven. Let's get as many souls as we can into heaven. Why bother with anything else? Why bother about stewarding creation? Why bother about anything else? Because our goal is actually to get out of here. And if that's how you think, that affects how you live. But perhaps you can have a different view where you do see that there's an importance to establishing God's kingdom on earth. That evangelism is important not only for getting people's souls into heaven, but also for the purpose of discipleship and transforming individual lives, transforming families, transforming communities, making a difference in this world. That will affect how you live. So perhaps you take, instead of a more escapist position, you take a more activist position, a kingdom activist position, where you advocate for justice and for shalom, the peace and the well-being of families and communities as well. And I'll hopefully be able to speak a little bit more into that. Uh, on December 19th, when I shared with you, I shared about the importance of being agents of hope in the world. And I just wanted to remind you about that in Romans 15, verse 3. It says, May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so as we overflow with hope, we become activists for the kingdom of God, agents for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the only real hope for the future. But we do have a problem. We have a primary obstacle in our thinking. Now, I think perhaps there's more than just one, but I want to speak about one today, and I think it's quite important. This obstacle in our thinking prevents us from effectively living out as citizens of heaven, as citizens of the kingdom. It prevents us from expressing the kingdom as fully as we should. And this obstacle has got to do with how we think about ourselves in terms of how we're made up. Now, we believe that the New Testament clearly shows us that there's three aspects to our being. We have a spirit, we have a soul, and we have a body. Now, some uh, view that the spirit and soul are inseparable, a little bit like Hebrews 4.12, where it says only the word of God can divide between the spirit and soul. But generally, in Hatfield, we hold that we're spirit, soul, and body. Uh, we get this from a scripture like 1 Thessalonians 5.23, where it says that may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, however you view spirit, soul, and body, these are aspects of our being. I do want to highlight, though, that when we hear these words, we tend to think of them in a very compartmentalized way. We tend to think spirit, and there's a distinction, and soul, and there's a distinction, and body. There's a distinction. I think this is a post-scientific, post 17 1800s view. When Paul used this, these words, I don't think he saw it as clearly compartmentalized as we do. In fact, we know that he, sometimes he uses the word soul, but he means whole being. And sometimes he uses the word spirit and he means your whole being. And the body also always incorporates your whole being. And so I don't think Paul had as a compartmentalized view as we tend to have about spirit, soul, and body. But in the world that Paul lived in, in the first century world, there was a challenge in how these aspects of being were reviewed. I think the challenge had to do with something called Greek dualism. I'm going to explain that shortly. And then a little bit after Paul's time, maybe in early seed form in, in Paul's world, uh, something called Gnosticism, which was a heresy that they really dealt with, the church leaders, the church fathers dealt with in the first century, in the 100s, second century, sorry, 100s after Jesus. 
Now, both these views drew quite a sharp distinction between spirit and matter, the realm of your spirit and soul and the realm of your body. Now, some of the Greek dualism was rooted in Plato's thinking or Platonic thinking, where he believed that what we really were were disembodied souls and that the only thing that had eternal value for you was your soul, that when you died, you would slip the sheath of your body and your soul would continue on to eternity. That's what Plato believed. And I think sometimes we think that's what the Bible teaches. And I want to suggest today that that's not what the Bible teaches. But this Greek dualism and Gnosticism drew a distinction that they said that things of the spirit are important and things of the material world are not as important. And they expressed that in, in, in different ways. And we'll talk about the church in Corinth, which had adopted some of this Greek thinking and and made a real mess of things, to be quite honest. But basically they said that matter is evil. It's not significant. It's only things of the spirit and soul that really count in this space. And I think we have this challenge in the present day too. By the way, you get modern day Gnostics as well. It's still a thing. It's still a a belief system that some people hold to. Uh, You can Google that. But in the present day, perhaps I can illustrate it by asking you this question. It's a trick question, so don't shout it out and embarrass yourself in front of your family and friends. Just think for yourself how you would answer this. What's most important or more important, your spirit, your soul, or your body? What's more important? I want to suggest that the biblical answer is all three are equally important. Now, if we, if I'd asked the question, what's primary, what should direct, then perhaps we can say spirit and then soul and then body. But our reality is that, let's say I'm sick, I've got flu, I've got COVID, that affects my soul, my mind, will, and emotions. It affects me. My body is not independent from my soul. It affects my spirit. If there's something wrong in my spirit, if my relationship with God is distorted, it affects my soul and can express itself in my body as well. We're much, spirit, soul, and body are much more intertwined and interrelated than what we generally are comfortable to acknowledge. And so what The way this translates then is that we have developed an unbiblical view of the body. One of the reasons we perhaps do this is because in some of the older translations of Scripture, when it talks about flesh, we tend to associate the flesh with evil, and that's then with our physical bodies. I think some of the more modern translations where they translate uh, that word as sinful nature, not as flesh, are perhaps a little bit more helpful. Your body is not evil. Your body is made by God. And I want to... Look at that a little bit. We are not souls going to heaven. And, and, and spiritual things like prayer and deliverance and healing and stuff, those are important. But what I also do with my body is important. And this, it's into this world of Greek dualism and perhaps early forms of Gnosticism that the New Testament speaks. And it teaches about the resurrection of the body, a physical resurrection of the body. It's into this first century world that Paul articulates this very clearly. And it's also into our world that I believe we need to hear these words again. I want to look at a couple of scriptures with you. If you can turn in your Bibles on your devices to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to read from verse 22 to 25. Romans 8 is quite well known. We know some of the passages, but there's a phrase in there that we just tend to go over quite quickly, which I want to highlight today. So Romans 8 reads, verse 22 says, what? We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth up until the present time. Creation is affected by the fall of man. Creation is waiting for the kingdom of God to come, for the sons of God 
to be revealed. There is a plan when God creates the new heaven and the new earth to restore creation. Verse 23 says, but not only creation, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And so those of us who have the Spirit of God that lives in us, those of us who are believers in Jesus, we know that things are not as they should be. And we are waiting for a better world, a future world. We're waiting for heaven to come. We're waiting for the kingdom of God to be more fully realized in our present age. But let's not miss that phrase, that our adoption to sonship will become part of the family of God. And one of the ways that things that's linked to that in Paul's mind is the redemption of our bodies. God will redeem your physical body because it's important to him. And then Paul goes on and he talks about hope. He says, for, this, for in this hope that our bodies will be redeemed, we are saved. But hope that is seen is not hope at all because once you've got what you hope for, you don't hope for it anymore. Hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we have hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. And this is part of our Christian hope, that we wait for the redemption of our bodies, for the resurrection of our bodies, for our new bodies. Now, I mentioned the Corinthian church a little bit earlier. And the Corinthian church is such an interesting church because with this wrong view that they had of the body and the influence of probably the Greek dualistic thinking in their space, they kind of went both ways. The one way they went was that, well, my body is not important. It's just matter. What I do with it doesn't matter. So I can go around and sleep with the temple prostitutes. And Paul has to address that and tell them, stop it. There's another group in the Corinthian church that went, well, because my body's of matter and evil, it's not as important or, you know, spirit and soul. I'm going to punish my body and I'm going to live an ascetic lifestyle, which means I'm going to deny my body and fast and abstain from all kinds of things. And they move to an imbalance that Paul has to correct. And these two things come to a head in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, we don't have time today to, to even read most of that chapter, but to do a detailed study of it, definitely not. But in this chapter, Paul addresses this thing where the Corinthians have said, but how's the resurrection going to happen? And then the skeptics among them said, but what's going to happen with our bodies? Is it going to be like Plato said, that we just slip the sheath of our body and we have this immortal disembodied soul that lives in eternity. And some of them are kind of going, yeah, that's what we want to happen. And Paul goes, no, no, you've got it all wrong. Your body is very important to God. Your current body is suited to the current existence. It's fallen. It's been corrupted, which means it's perishable. It's going to fail. It's a mortal body. But your current body, in essence, Paul says, is like a seed of your future body, which is going to be suited to your future existence in the kingdom of God. It's going to be suited for your future existence on the new heavens and in the, in the new earth. That body is going to be imperishable, Paul says. In fact, Paul says it's because we follow the pattern of Jesus. Like when Jesus was raised from the dead, he had a body. It was recognizable. It still carried the marks of his crucifixion. It could do some cool things like appear and walk through walls. It would be nice. But we don't quite know exactly what it's going to look like. But Thessalonians tells us and John tells us, but we know that we will be like him. In that space. Your body is so important to God that he will give you a new one. Your body is so important to God that he will give you a new one. This body, your body, my body, will be transformed because we are spirit, soul, and body. Those three intertwined make us a living being. They make us who we are. So what we do 
in and with our bodies in this life is very important. And why am I harping on this? Because if we want to fully express the kingdom of God, we have to realize that our Christian life and our Christian journeys of discipleship are not just about what we do with our spirit and our soul. It also means what I do with my body. On my front line, do I present a balanced budget? Do I steward my body well, speaking to myself? Do I, when I do good works, when I transform communities, when I steward creation with my body, those are good works that God wants us to do as well. So the kingdom of God is very holistic and it deals with every aspect and the fullest expression of who we can be as people who are made in the image of God. So what we do with our bodies in this life really matters in two ways, I think. Firstly, in areas of holiness and purity. What you do with your body is really matters. Your body is not divorced from your soul and spirit. Sometimes we say it this way. Your body is not who you really are. That's not a biblical view of the body. The body is there to, yes, engage with the material world. But what I do with my body affects my soul. What I do with my body affects my spirit and the other way around as well. And perhaps if I may speak to hopefully the younger people that might be listening today, there's a thing that's popularly referred to as a hookup culture. And the idea underlying that culture is that it's just sex. It's just something I do with my body. It's not, it doesn't affect me. And it's not true. It deeply affects you. Because your spirit, soul, and body, your body is important to God. The natural body God gave you is part of his design for your life. And it integrates with your spirit and your soul. Your biological body is part of who God made you to be. But also your body is important for how you live every day. Prayer is important. Fasting is important. Understanding the Bible is important. But the good works that I do with my hands, where I let my feet go, the acts of kindness and generosity and justice and compassion that I do in this world with my body also matter. Every good deed motivated by love that you do on your front line makes a difference for the kingdom of God. And so Paul comes to the end of this chapter where he's engaged with his things around the body and the reality of the resurrection of the body. And the last verse in the chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says this. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm in your view of the body. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Everything you do for God matters. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. A number of years ago, there was a movie that was released. It was called Gladiator. And the, the main protagonist in the, in the story is General Maximus. And one of what echoes around him, what's said around him is his view of life. And there's this phrase in the movie that says that, Maximus says it, he says that what we do in this life echoes in eternity. Now, I think that, that's probably a little bit of a Stoic view, and, and there's some first century Greek philosophy mixed up, second century Greek philosophy mixed up in that. But I think the Bible says more than that. I think the Bible says that what I do in this life doesn't just echo in eternity. It's not something we kind of hear from a distance. I think the Bible teaches that what you do in this life for the kingdom carries through into eternity. What you do in this life for the kingdom carries through into eternity. What you do in this life is transformational. It really matters. What we do 
in this life really matters. Evangelism is critically important. I'm for it. Discipleship is critically important. But as we disciple people, we must help them understand that it's more about getting their souls to heaven. It's more about than just getting saved. You get saved with a purpose. Yes, part of that purpose is to go to heaven, which is spending eternity with God. But the reason for that is because he's bringing a kingdom. He's building a kingdom. It's God's will, God's way on this earth. God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And so it's critically important that we bring this hope into the world, not only in our speech, but in our actions as well. You see, our real hope is not just that we are going to heaven when we die, but that the kingdom of God is coming on this earth and that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21 verse 1, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, how all that works out is interesting and speculative and there can be lots of discussions. But the future fact in this case is there will be a new heaven and a new earth and the kingdom of God will come. And this is the real hope for the world, that this distorted life we live, the sin-marred and damaged life we live, will be transformed and will be recreated to be like God always intended it to be. And so as I close, I want to read one last scripture. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Peter writes and he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, so will we be. But we get this new birth. We are born again. We become children of God into a living hope. Not a future hope, a hope that we live in now that affects how we live now. And so my message is entitled today, Hope for the World. And I believe that as citizens of the kingdom, as believers in Jesus Christ, as disciples of the Lord and Master Jesus Christ, our view of the future is very important. And our view of our role in the future and our role in bringing the kingdom of God into our lives, into our front lines is very important. Because it's only if we have hope in the future in the kingdom of God that we have a realistic and hopeful prospect to present to the world, a realistic and hopeful option we present to the world and work towards a better future. You are more than a disembodied soul. And what you do carries eternal value. And if it's not us that are the agents of hope in this world, then who will it be? And so as we begin this year, we have a real hope. We have a realistic hope that we can make a difference. We can work towards transformation of families and lives and communities because the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Let us pray together. Father, thank you that there is a wonderful, good and certain future for us. Thank you that it is your kingdom that will make all the difference. It's your kingdom that will come. And so we echo the prayer of Jesus this morning. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in my life, in our lives and in our families, so that we can establish kingdom works that can go through to eternity through us. In our families and in any aspect of our front line, in every relationship we have with everyone we meet, may your kingdom come. And may this be 
a source of hope that you stir up in us by the power of your indwelling spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Just two announcements uh, as we close uh, the service. And so at this time of recording, which is actually still in December, uh, our plan is to start on-site services next week on the 9th of January. Obviously, that's going to be all to do with COVID permitting and restrictions permitting. But our intention is to start on-site services both morning and evening next week, Sunday the 9th of January. And then also just a reminder that we have this exciting initiative on ETV, which we're calling the Hatfield Sessions. And we're going to be doing 13 episodes on the topic of saying yes to Jesus and what that means. And it's really important for us just to have a voice into our nation, a hopeful voice into our nation at this time. But we are asking you, and you would have received an email if you're on our church mailing list, to be part of a studio audience. And so if you can be part of that on the 13th and the 14th of January, uh, why don't you contact Cabela on the email address that is going to come up on the screen, and she will get back to you and give you all the details that we need. But we'd love for you to be part of this exciting initiative, exciting kingdom initiative, which we're getting into this week. Thank you for joining us today. God bless you and your family in this new year.